0: As children, we're all taught about the seven deadly sins and what could happen should we fall victim to them. Though these sins were commonly correlated to the Bible and Christ, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth were not actually stated in the Bible. Evagris Ponticus wrote about seven spirits we all had to overcome with his book The Institutes. The Catholic Church used the concept of deadly sins to help people curb their inclinations towards evil before dire consequences could occur. But what happens when someone becomes so wrapped up in their sins that the devil himself comes knocking? In Joyce Carol Oates' Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been?, a young teenage girl's vanity lands her a one-on-one meeting with an old friend this is a juicy one, so let's dive into that. Welcome to Audibly Haunted. I'm your host, Ani Kachadorian. Now before we begin, I do want to give a trigger warning as this episode does touch on sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Where are you going? Where have you been? Is a short story I read when I began studying for my English literature degree. I remember the chills it gave me reading it, and to this day, many years later, I still get the same chills. The story makes your skin. Skin crawl in so many ways, and the hidden theme behind every word really tests the mind to search for the real meanings. For those who are not familiar with the story, it goes a little something like this. The story is about a rebellious 15 year old girl named Connie, whose mother constantly berates her for obsessing over her appearance and not being more humble like her plain older sister June. Connie often lies to her father about going to the movies, and instead goes to hang out at a drive-in restaurant with her friends. One evening, she is befriended by an older guy named Eddie, who has a car. After she spends a few hours with him, he takes her back to her friends, and then she goes home. To keep her mother from suspecting such behaviors, Connie tries to present a different self at home. She pretends to be more innocent and sensible than she actually is on a hot summer July day, a Sunday. The rest of the family gets ready to go to Connie's aunts for a barbecue, but Connie decides to stay home, alone. After they leave, she decides to sit in the sun to dry her hair. And while she is sitting outside in the sun, a car drives up with two older men. These men call themselves Arnold Friend and Ellie Oscar and they try to persuade her to come for a drive with them. Although Connie doesn't know them, there is something familiar about the appearance of Arnold, and seems he knows so much about her, even her name. Then she remembers that she had seen him at the restaurant the night before. Connie is reluctant to go for a drive with them, and is suspicious when Arnold reveals just how much he actually knows about her. He claims to be the same age as her, but when she expresses her doubts, he gives in, and claims to be just a little older, 18. When she catches a glimpse of Ellie, who is listening to music inside the car, she realizes that he's much older, like 40 years older. Arnold becomes more persistent and intense in his desire for her, but that only makes Connie more nervous and suspicious, until she threatens to call the police. Arnold agrees not to come in the home, where Connie has retreated while she talks to him, however, he threatens her, suggesting that something will happen to her family if she doesn't come with him. He repeatedly encourages her to come with him so he can show her exactly what real love is. Although she goes to phone someone, Connie is manipulated and talked out of doing so. She eventually gives in and leaves her home to go with Arnold, and Ellie in the car. The story ends with her glimpsing at the sunlit land behind Arnold, which stretches out like an unknown new land, a land she is heading towards knowing that she's never coming back home. Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? was first released in the fall 1966 edition of Epic Magazine. Originally titled Death and the Maiden, Oates was inspired by the murders committed by serial killer Charles Schmidt, or better known as the Pied Piper of Tucson. Slight, short, and scrawny, Charles Schmidt would wear makeup and lifts in his shoes to make him seem much more imposing and impressive. Just like any other serial killer, Schmidt grew up in a broken home, even being put up for adoption right after he was born. He really was the definition of peaking in high school. Joining the school's gymnastic team, he led them to their state championship. He later stated it was the fear and risk that drew him to the sport itself. As he grew older after high school, he had nothing to show. No job, no prospects, and even though he was a part of the team, he didn't even have a high school diploma. After befriending a group of men, Schmidt began to put tin cans and rags in his shoes to make him seem taller. And he even began drawing a mole on his face to make him look a little bit more like his idol, Elvis Presley. His odd ability to lure and charm young teenage girls is what earned him the name and title of the Pied Piper of Tucson. On May 31st, 1965, Schmidt convinced his friend and girlfriend to have 15-year-old Eileen Rowe join them on a double date. They drove out to the desert where the men sexually assaulted Rowe and cracked her head with a rock. All the while, Schmidt's girlfriend sat in the car listening to music. Just 1 year after Rowe disappeared, Schmidt's 17-year-old girlfriend Gretchen Fritz and her younger sister Wendy also went missing. He just couldn't get enough and thought that he had gotten away with it, and this drove him to run his mouth about the crimes. Schmidt spills all that he had done, as well as show where the bodies of the girls were buried, to his friend Richie Bruns. Bruns fears that Schmidt would kill his own girlfriend, and he exposes what Schmidt had done, leading to his arrest and sentencing. The story is based on a true and real-life crime, but Oates brings a supernatural element to play within the story. Many who analyze this short story find that a demonic touch resides between the lines. Something that is common in ghostly tales that lean more towards something much darker is the presence of flies. When flies are mentioned within stories or books, it will imply that the devil's work is at play. The first glimpse we get is while Connie sits with her mother. Oates writes, Sometimes, over coffee, they were almost friends, but something would come up, some vexation that was like a fly buzzing suddenly around their heads, and their faces went hard with contempt. This quick change in demeanor and changes within their face depicts an oppression within the room, and the buzzing of flies brings an evil element into the scene. A real-life case where flies were present is in the documentation of the haunting faced by the Perrin family. This family's haunting is what inspired the Conjuring film franchise. This family found that one room most heavily haunted by a demonic presence was always night, day, hot or cold, infested with flies. Though the flies mentioned here are hypothetical, it's in their heads, it still imposes the idea that a dark thought, a dark matter, surrounds them. Flies make an entrance again when Connie and her friends lie to their parents about going to the movies and enter a diner instead. Oats again writes, They went up through the maze of parked and cruising cars to the bright-lit, fly-infested restaurant, their faces pleased and expectant, as if they were entering a sacred building that loomed out of the night to give them what haven and blessing they yearned for. The lights of the diner were seen as a haven, a sacred place for two young girls trying to be much older than they were. It's the verbiage used, though, that The outside viewer makes this sacred place not so sacred at all. To state it is a fly-infested restaurant hints that something much more sinister lies waiting in the dark. This is a falsified house of God, if you will. It's here the devil may dwell in waiting. The girls run to the restaurant to engage with older boys. They are there to gain their attention. Lies, pride, and vanity is what drives these girls, especially Connie, and that is what brings the evil that comes calling. Let's face it, when you read the story, you quickly realize that Connie is a self-absorbed 15-year-old who is overcome with vanity. She is obsessed with her looks and beauty deeming herself better than others around her. Vanity falls under the first deadly sin of pride, and vanity happens to be the devil's favorite and most essential sin. Now, with that being said, let me introduce you all to Arnold Friend. After Connie's family drives away to go to a family barbecue, Connie is sitting outside drying her hair and enjoying the warm summer sun. When she feels sleepy and hot, she wanders back inside, turning on her radio, and soon she hears a car drive up her driveway to her front door. Even though it's a stranger coming to her home, she sees that it's two young men, and her first thought is to check to make sure her hair looks cute and she's presentable. A gold, open-topped jalopy parks outside, and a man named Arnold Friend steps out of the car. The name Arnold Friend seems harmless, right? Well, what happens when you say the name really fast? Arnold Friend. It comes out like an old friend. The phrase an old friend is a common one used when referring to the devil himself. The name beautifully disguises the demon that stands before Connie. Connie asks who he is and what the hell he thinks he's doing there, but Friend simply states, Am I late? and then begins his manipulation to get Connie to go for a ride with him and his companion Ellie, who was sitting in the car. Ellie doesn't say a word and only looks forward with a transistor radio to his ear. Here, We can see the parallel to the real-life story of charles schmidt's crimes as his girlfriend just sat in the car listening to music while charles himself committed the crimes when introducing himself friend begins to read off three numbers he states 33 19 and 17 claiming that these are a secret code to the unsuspecting eye these numbers may seem harmless As even Connie brushes them off, but there is a deeper meaning here. Friend reads them out as 33, 19, and 17, but this is backwards. When you reverse it, he is referring to the book of Judges, which is the 33rd book in the Bible, chapter 19 verse 17. This verse reads, And when he had lifted up his eyes, He saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city, and the old man said, Whither goest thou, and whence comest thou? In plain lingo, you have your title. Where are you going? Where have you been? But there is more than just the title here. Friend is mocking the Bible by referring and reading it backwards as the devil or demons would to mock Christ. As Friend talks to Connie, he addresses her by her name, confusing her. She tells him, ''How do you know my name? I never said my name was Connie.'' To which Friend replies, ''I know your name and all about you. Lots of things. I took special interest in you, such a pretty girl.'' In the paranormal world, when a person is marked and is under a demonic oppression or possession. Some way, somehow, the creature attacking them knows their name. The devil will always know the name of his victim, but it is here that the devil known as Arnold Friend plays into Connie's sin, her vanity, choosing her because she is so pretty. Still, Connie is unsure of friend and asks him where he's from and why she'd never seen him before. Friend jokes with her, saying, why don't you want to go for a ride? Afraid your hair will get messed up in the wind? Again, playing up her sinful vanity. He asks, did you see my sign? When Connie is confused, he answers, don't you know I'm your friend? Don't you see me putting up my sign in the air when you walk by? She asks, what sign? Friend states, my sign and he drew an X in the air, leaning out towards her. Connie let the screen door close and stood perfectly still inside. X, X is commonly used to represent Christ. X is the devil's mark, as he uses it to mock Christ. Friend is marking Connie to take her away, away from her home, family, and friends, to never return her. In Connie's fear, she closes the screen door to separate her from Friend. He begins to tell her he knows all about her and her family. He states no one, not even her father, will come to save her from him. And he begins to describe what's happening at the party, as if he has eyes all around the family as well. Connie threatens to call the police, and quickly Friend replies, "Honey." i'm not coming in there but you you're coming out here as soon as you touch that phone i don't need to keep my promise and i can come inside it's a common theory we see it a lot in stories about vampires werewolves and even the devil himself if there is love within a home evil cannot enter it unless the love is gone or they're invited in what protects connie is the single ounce of love from her father or her mother that is held within that house. The idea that when in trouble, Connie does not call for the people who love her, but she turns straight to the police, breaking the love. And once that love is broken, Friend can enter the home. Now, during this whole exchange, Friend has sort of propped himself up against the side of the car, not really walking until now. With Connie like a trapped animal in a cage, Friend begins to take a step forward, towards the screen door. Connie notices something strange. Oates writes, one of his boots was at a strange angle, as if his foot wasn't in it. It pointed to the left, bent at the ankle. This moment hints both the supernatural world and reality. On the one hand, the strange angle his boot takes and the unstableness to walk in the boots hints that maybe it's not feet in those boots, but rather hooves. As it is said in many folklores and myths, that the devil has hoofed feet. On the other hand, this is again a direct line to Charles Schmidt as he would stuff his shoes to appear taller to his victims. I want to take a step away from the paranormal aspects for just a moment and talk about the creepy factors this story takes at this point. She begins to see that both boys are much older than she thought, seeing that they are actually men, grown men. Connie's panic sets in as Friend continues his threats to harm her, her family, if she doesn't join him, and suddenly, her very own kitchen seems unfamiliar to her. Connie rushes to lock the front door. At this point, Friend has approached the door and states, Why lock it? It's just a screen door. Picture this for just a moment. You are frightened, in your own home, and a stranger, an odd, older individual that seems to be not of this world, this predator, stands in front of you, and all that separates you from them is this thin material of your screen door. At any point, a simple push of the screen can bring down your only small bit of security. Connie fearfully yells for Friend to leave her be, and when he asks for her to step outside, she asks, what are you going to do? He replies, just two things, or maybe three. This is disturbing on so many levels. For starters, the concept of seating three is a very big common occurrence that's seen in demonic activity. Three knocks, three scratches, this is the mocking of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second disturbing factor is the cryptic nature of this premeditated sexual assault this predator is stating to his prey. Now Connie knows what's waiting for her the moment she leaves her home. Remember when I said after getting too hot outside, Connie went inside and turned the radio on? Many who read this story believe that Connie dreamt this encounter with Friend. Throughout the story, Friend's voice takes on that of the radio host, or his hands tend to constantly keep beat to the songs playing from Ellie's radio. Music is referenced throughout the entirety of the second half of the story. So, is it possible that because of the heat, Connie fell asleep with the radio on and had a sort of fever or heat dream? Or was the devil really knocking at her door? It is stories like this that made me want to start this podcast, to the unsuspecting eye This is just a creepy story about a predator that manipulates a young teenage girl to take a ride with him, which would mean her absolute and certain death. But when you take a closer look, this story is dripping with paranormal mythology and theory. So much of the story is built off the mythology of demonic hauntings, and a lot of it ties in to many tales and urban legends of what it's like when the devil himself comes knocking. The paranormal world is all around you. All you have to do is take a closer look, and ghosts will really begin to appear within the very words you're reading. This has been Audibly Haunted, and I'm your host, Ani Chudoyan. You can find Audibly Haunted wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, you name it. Give it a listen, drop a rating, a review, and share with all your friends. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you all next week.